Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rasquet-Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Today, we talk to Karen Stryer, a professor of anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and member of the editorial committee of the Annual Review of Anthropology. Professor Stryer specializes in the behavioral ecology of primates, using the northern Murray Key of Brazil's Atlantic Forest as a model for comparison with other primates. She also focuses on how the demographics of a group affects behavior. Part of Professor Stryer's work is to contribute to conservation efforts, as the Murray Key is one of the most critically endangered primate species in the world. In 2003, she was named Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. In 2005, she was elected member of the National Academy of Sciences. She is also the author of Faces in the Forest, the Endangered Murray Key Monkey of Brazil. Professor Karen Stryer, welcome to our show. Thanks, thanks. It's great to be here. So let's talk a little bit about how you got started with the Murray Keys. Well, the, um, I was a graduate student and looking for a Ph.D. project, and at the time, um, in the early 1980s, a lot of um, there had been a lot of research done on old-world primates, um, principally species like baboons and macaques, um, rhesus macaques, Japanese macaques, and chimpanzees. And the idea was, um, so, so I became interested in, in looking at maybe primates in a more comparative way, and there were I, some theories about the evolution of primate social behavior as that would ultimately perhaps apply to human, the evolution of human behavior. And it seemed like we needed to step further beyond just looking at the old world primates, which are more closely related to humans, and to look at other primates to understand how well these rules or these theories about behavior might apply. And so the Moriquis represented a really interesting um, comparative kind of test case because what was known about them at the time was that they have um, was pretty much from their morphological characteristics and so people had had you know, studied museum specimens and we knew that they had teeth that were um, the kind that you find in, in primates that eat a lot of um, high fiber foods like leaves but then they have this mode of suspensory locomotion, which, you know, they swing through the trees really quickly and they can, which is associated with um, the ability to cover long distances very quickly and that you would use that, that would be an, a mode of locomotion advantageous to exploiting widely dispersed patches of fruit. So this dichotomy between half of their body was built for leaf eating and the other half for fruit eating set them up it's this great comparison for models about the evolution of social behavior based on the kinds of foods that primates eat because either they were leaf eaters or fruit eaters and that would tell us that would let me test these hypotheses about whether their behavior was also um, predicted based on their diet. So can, can you describe them a little bit for us um, physically? I mean, you mentioned the teeth, but let's talk a little bit about their size and, um, and you know, how this influences uh, their social behavior. Well, so they are, um, these, they're big furry animals. They weigh about, um, well, between about 10 to 15 kilograms. Um, they stand, they're, they're, they have bodies, they, they're closely related to spider monkeys. And people, a lot of people have seen spider monkeys in zoos, although 
you've probably never seen a Morikina zoo because they're only um, found in Brazil, and they have they're so critically endangered that they're not found in zoos. But they, um, but they have um, long arms and long legs, and they have prehensile tails. And um, perhaps uh, the two most distinctive characteristics are that the males and the females are the same body size, and they have the same size canines, so they're what we call sexually monomorphic. And that means that has implications for social behavior because it implies that males don't have um, any physical advantages over females, and so in contrast to most other primates where males are a bit bigger than females and have larger canines, in Marquis they, um, they don't. So that raised the question of whether females might be uh, more, more liberated or more independent than, and less, um, have less need to be concerned about being attacked or um, coerced into to follow or subordinate to the males. And then the males also have very large testes um, relative to their body size, and this is thought to be associated with um, sperm competition. Large testes can produce larger quantities of sperm and at more frequent intervals. And it implied, together with their body size, mymorphism and their canine dimorphism, that maybe the whole system of competition in the Morikis was very subtle and that they would actually um, associate, you know, have more peaceful relationships with one another while they were at the same time maybe competing at the level of sperm instead of actually in terms of monopolizing or through overt aggression um, toward one another. So um, the Murikis are an endangered species. Can you tell us a little bit about the challenges that they faced? Well, they are um, critically endangered, and part of that is because they are endemic to the Atlantic forest of southeastern Brazil, and the species the nor- that I studied, the northern is today is restricted to the states um, of Minas Gerais and Espírito Santo. And altogether, there are only 12 populations known to exist of this species today, with a total population for the whole species is less than 1,000 animals. And what happened in this part of Brazil years ago, um, pretty much beginning with the um, initial exploitation, initial um, colonization and of the Europeans was deforestation, and this is a productive part of the country in terms of farming. And so, a lot of the the Atlantic forest was cut for far- for for farms and pasture land, and consequently, that's just destroyed, reduced the habitat. So, these, and then there's also a lot of people living in this region, and that meant that the animals were um, hunted historically as well. So now they're protected, and what remains of the Atlantic forest is protected. And I was really lucky to go to work in one particular form of forest fragment that's less than a thousand hectares in size and it had one of the last remaining one of these last remaining populations in Warrenkis. So can you tell us a little bit more um, about about that, about specifically the um, the place that you work in? Um, you say it's a private it's a private space. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. The conservation project? Well, so the, the forest itself is a small, um, it's, it's a little patch of forest that's surrounded by farmland. And it, it was, um, and that farm is owned by a family. 
And the uh, owner, the patriarch of the family, when he bought this land in the 40s, promised his predecessor on the land that he would uh, preserve the forest and protect the Murkis, and he, he basically did that. And in 2001, he died, and his family um, decided to, to convert the forest into a, what's called a, a federally protected private reserve. So they still own the land, but they've made a permanent commitment to preservation and they and the monkeys are protected from hunting there and if you can imagine um think about this little forest and it's you know when we talk about fragmentation habitat fragmentation it's a forest that's sort of surrounded by um pasture or past agricultural land so it's it's really like an island of green in the middle of of nothing and one of the goals of our conservation project has been to protect this place and these animals and with with the um, support of the family that owns the land we have been able to do that really well but the next step as the population has grown has been to and this is an ongoing project now is to try to build a a corridor that connects little fragments of this forest with some of the other adjacent you know there's there's nothing continuous, but there are other fragments of forest, and if we can plant trees that then connect this forest to some other patches of forest, eventually we can increase the whole size of the area that's available for the monkeys, and that can support a larger population that would then be more resistant to any kind of um, population crash that could impact the species and right now we've got more than 300 animals in this one little forest which um, is really scary because that represents one third of the entire species so if anything happens to this population it's really bad for the whole species and you know unfortunately when we talk about critically endangered species today of all animals that's what we're talking about you know really thinking about um, you know people have hundreds of Facebook friends, right? So imagine if that was the entire human population or a third of the whole population. I mean, it's it's a really, we're, we really are talking about small numbers. What are some of the methods that you employ to study them? All of the research, um, partly because the animals are so critically endangered, and all of the research, um, and I, I should say too that a big effort of our, of my conservation efforts has involved working with Brazilian students and over the years I've trained more than 40 um, Brazilian Brazilian graduate students so that they are actually um, many of them are now involved in conservation or working on their own research projects with endangered species and um, or training students of their own um, in the same area and so we do everything observational um, we never have any physical contact with the animals and it's mainly for their own safety as well as our own. Um, we don't want to introduce any diseases into them or to make them any more vulnerable to maybe people who wouldn't have as, um, as wouldn't be as well-intentioned as we are. And so we, we just observe them. Um, we've done some really exciting research with um, 
using their dung, um, collecting their feces, which is like one of my favorite substances in the world because, <laughs> because it's, it's like the total green thing. Um, there, you know, it's renewable, it's recyclable and, <laughs> and it just, you just wait for it to, it to come down out of the trees. Um, and we can, so in the nineties, we did a lot of research, a collaborator of mine at the university of Wisconsin primate center here. Tony Ziegler, we looked at um, extracting hormones from their feces, and that was where we learned what gestation length and ovarian cycling, and we, I mean, we learned so much without ever touching the animals, just from extracting the steroids in their, in their dung. And more recently, with collaborators at the University of Texas, uh, Anthony DeFiore and um, uh, one of our graduate students, Paulo Chavez, we've been able to actually begin to look at genetics. Um, extracting DNA from their feces as well. So, you know, again, we just wait till the animals poop and then we can collect yeah. their, collect this material and, and extract all this information out of it. And um, I still think it's really magical that we do that. So, so, and I think the plan is, you know, we're, we're never going to, um, and in this population, do much more manipulation unless it became you know, really necessary for managing purposes, which it doesn't look like it will be. Yeah. So um, let's go a little bit more into detail about the role of females in, in the murky groups. You, you mentioned that a little bit earlier, um, that, you know, it's it's obviously because of their size, it's an egalitarian society. Mm-hmm. So how, um, how how much more can you, can you tell us about this? Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting if you think about it. The whole... The sort of the whole social dynamics of any situation, you know, for for the Murkis would change when you take away the fact that males have no advantage over females. So females don't have to live um, in fear of getting attacked by a male or or threatened by a male. They're just kind of in their own. Um, they they have more control and independence and um, over their own behavior and where they go. In Murakis, the females um, disperse from their natal groups. So in contrast to a lot of old world monkeys, but more similar to chimpanzees and, and many other new world primates, the females leave their natal groups and the males stay in their natal groups for life. And so right away, the females are more are, are independent. You know, they, they grow up and they usually leave their moms and they often will go off into other groups where they might have sisters or other females that they know, but they're, they're really on their own. But then for the, 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 once they stay in their groups or their mothers, um, get to stay in their groups with their adult sons, you know, for their entire lives too. And so these females have a lot of, um, can have a lot of influence over their son's features as well as helping prepare their daughters to become independent. You actually wrote an article for us uh, about four years ago uh, in which you discussed the effects of kin on, on, mm-hmm. on the life of primates. Mm-hmm. Um, you just mentioned dispersion a little bit, group dispersion. Um, how does kin affect reproduction and maternal investment um, I- among murikis? Well, so because in, in, in a society where usually you would have mothers, um, you know, if they produce, if they have daughters, and then when their daughters reach puberty, which we now know is about six or seven years of age, they, on average, they, they usually leave their natal group. And so um, that's 
relative to their body size, that's pretty late um, to be able to. It's like the females have to stay, and they have very slow, it takes them a long time to mature, and then they have longer, slower life histories and maybe longer lifespans relative to their body size because they are um, doing everything more slowly, maybe to prepare themselves better to, um, <laughs> maybe maybe um, related to the fact that they're pretty much on their own once they leave their natal oh, groups, yeah. as opposed to um, in societies like baboons or macaques, where females, those are matrilineal societies where the females stay in their natal groups for life and they're overlapping generations. So, you know, daughters are surrounded usually by their mothers and their sisters and their aunts and their grandmothers sometimes. And and so they, they have this huge support network, which really helps them. But with the with species like the Morakis, where the females disperse, this has an you know it's it, it's correlated with their other aspects of their life history, and I thought that um, that looking at pulling that together in a comparative perspective for the annual reviews would be really interesting because we often um, the different pieces of the puzzle, but maybe not put together that often. And the Morikis really got me stimulated and, you know, interested in these questions because of this, the fact that the females are dispersing from their natal groups and that the core of the society, the kinship in their society is really based on two things. One being male relationships, because the males live in their natal groups with their fathers, their brothers, their uncles, and their sons, and so they get multi-generational um, access to male relatives, and um, and this is something that, again, was related to, has come out from some of the paternity study, of the importance of their mothers, because adult sons are living with their mothers also for life, and their mothers become grandmothers to their kids, and potentially um, maybe helping them meet females in there and get access to females as mates as well. Yeah, and this is this is part of work that, that you've done that um, you've actually published some of some of the findings recently in the proceedings of, uh, Nas- of the National Academy of Sciences. So can, can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know, the, the, the influence of, of mothers on their son's reproductive <laughs> success. Well, so we... Which we, is crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not... It, it's sounding crazy, but and just for a minute, it actually makes perfect sense. So so the, the paternity study was really exciting, and I really want to um, credit my collaborators in that project, Tony DiFiori and, and Paula Chavez at University of Texas in Austin, because they're the ones who did all of the laboratory work and were able to um, to generate the data that were then possible to really interpret from um, what we knew from behavioral observations were that these males are just you know really tolerant of one another um, mating behavior and again because the males are related and because they not they don't have hierarchical relationships they they don't fight with one another and because they don't monopolize or dominate females, we sometimes see in nature, you know, in, our, in the wild, we'll see the, a female mate with five or six males in close succession, and, you know, the males are just waiting their turn um, peacefully. And this is completely different from what you see in most other primates. It's really unusual. And mm-hmm. so we predicted, you know, from the behavior, we always wondered how much of this would be, um, is, this really, is this really as sort of carefree and and 
pretty much um, evenly distributed as it seems, or are we missing something, you know, something going on behind the scenes? So it was really exciting to get the actual genetic data um, from this first study and to see that, yes, indeed, um, the behavioral data was consistent, the, the, the behavioral data were consistent with the genetic data that showed that we could actually say that, yeah, compared to other primates, uh, we had, I think, 22 infants that we looked at their paternity, and those 22 infants had 13 different fathers between them. So there was not one male monopolizing most of these kids. It was really everybody, you know, lots of the males were getting getting reproductive opportunities. And so when you look at it from the male's perspective, you know, I think one male had four kids and a couple of the males had two kids and the other males had one kid. And this was just over a few year period. So it's a small sample size for a start. But when you look at, and so that was reassuring that pretty much what we were seeing with the behavior was actually what was happening at a genetic level. But then if um, you step back one generation and you look at it from the perspective of the mothers of these sons that had the kids, the fathers of these babies we were looking at. Mm -hmm. So they're the grandmothers of those babies. There were only right. four females that account, accounted for 75% or they were related to 75% of the infants, of their grandkids. So, so at the male level, the sons are just mating as much as they can and um, getting whatever fertility they can get. But the grandmothers are actually just a couple of them were consolidating most of these this reproductive success and um that makes sense again if you think about it from the perspective of the grandmother so let's see well let's say we'll call them the mothers so you're a mother and you have one son and she has four kids so you end up with four grandma grandkids right you could be another mother, and you have four sons, and each one of those kids has one offspring. Well, you still end up with four grandkids. So from the grandmother's point of view, it doesn't matter whether you're getting all your grandkids through one kid or through different ones of your kids. And that, right. and that right. may be from the perspective so that there actually might be more reproductive monopolies going on, but they're not happening at the level of the males, the fathers. They're happening through the grandmothers. And this is something that we need to explore more with more data and larger sample sizes. But it did raise the question of were there, what were these grandmothers or what were the mothers of the fathers doing to their to help their sons? <laughs> and, you know, it's very subtle because we weren't looking for that particular behavior. And we, you know, went back to old behavioral data. And, yeah, sure enough, some of these um, mothers were spending a lot of time with their sons. But, you know, they're not helping them mate. So what are they doing? And I started thinking about this from the perspective of, well, you know, maybe... Maybe just um, by spending, by being accessible to their sons, their sons have experience with hang, interacting with females through their mothers. They have experience. They get to meet their mother's friends. And um, maybe as a result of meeting their mother's friends, they meet their future mates. So we're looking right. at that from a behavioral level as well. And I think, you know, if you think about in human society, you know, it's not so... It's not so 
strange to imagine um, a 20-year-old kid going to the mall with his mom, and then um, she runs into her friend, and her friend's there with her daughter, and, you know, mm-hmm. the two hit it off that way. And, you know, how many yeah. how many of us have mothers who tried to match us up with people? So... <laughs> So it's not. I don't. I don't think the Murakis are being at all that explicit or even that intentional. It might just be the case that if you're, if you're a male Murakis and your mother's around and she's popular, um, you get to see, you get to meet her friends, um, get to, get to know her friends. Of course. Um, and we're, you know, and that might actually help you reproductively. And if that's true, then that's really cool because it means that maybe for other primates too, we should be stepping back and looking at um, another generation. And you know, with primates living in social groups, they and because they have these overlapping generations, it's not that uncommon for grandmothers to be alive at the same time that their their grandkids are born. Which means that they have lots mm-hmm. of opportunities to help and we know that they do in female bonded societies um, where you've got these extended matter lines maybe we need to look at this a little bit more from the perspective of what do the mothers of sons do in the patrilocal societies like Murakis right so so what kind of implication does this have for humans I mean, the whole the whole thing about grandmothers you, you know there's 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 a link there too how how do you think this could help uh, research um, about a human evolution well i think it's really important to um to separate out where it can and where it can't help so one thing that is still turns out to be true and it's true in Marquis as well is that we don't really see evidence of um, menopause, women, females living living well beyond their reproductive years like we do in humans. That seems to be a uniquely human human characteristic. And uh, so the grandmother hypothesis, which was, um, was developed by Kristen Hawkes at the University of Utah, has really been to try to understand from an evolutionary perspective the advantages of... Um, post-reproductive um, lifespan in in humans. And when we look comparatively at other primates, we don't see that post-reproductive lifespan. But that doesn't mean that some of the roots of the behavior, of the advantages of having a grandmother might be around, might, might not help. And we know from studies of baboons that... Um, that live in these long, uh, la- large matrilineal societies, that um, having lots of female kin around helps um, helps kids do better. They they survive. Right. They have higher survivorship, and they have better rep- higher reproductive success themselves. So maybe the same thing is happening in these patrilocal societies. And there's new data coming out now from bonobos as well, where mothers are also very influential in their, um, in their son's reproductive success. And that suggests that maybe, and bonobos, of course, are much closely related to humans, more closely related to humans than Murakis, but it suggests then that what we're seeing in the Murakis might be a wider spread, a wider phenomenon across primates. And if you see it in in primates that are closer related to humans, as well as in primates that are like the Murakis that are more distantly related but have similar kinds of social um, patterns, then maybe we're looking at really deep, um, consistent hypothesis, you know, a, a behavioral 
patterns and, and phenomenon and not something that's just arbitrary chance. So I think that, you know, the more we can get a broad comparative perspective on some of these questions, looking comparatively at, at a wide range of primates, the more we can understand what it is that um, maybe humans, that distinguish humans from other primates as well as what distinguish humans and their closest living relatives from the rest of the primate order. And time and time again, we seem to find that when we look closely at other primates, we find many of the same things that we thought were really special turn out to um, occur in other species as well. Right. Um, so let's, let's you know, just kind of going back to the whole confer- conservation effort, um, it seems to have uh, borne fruit because you started with a population of how many? Well, we've had two groups in this population with about a total of 50 animals altogether. Um, and then now, 30 years later, we have four groups because one of the groups um, got so big it split twice. And we, so we have four groups in this population, and we have th- over 320 animals. So it's been more than a um, six-fold increase in the population size in 30 years. And this is in the same space, right? This is in the same forest fragment. In fact, some of the animals, some of the individuals that I um, was, that were in the, in the group when I started my study in 1982 are still alive 30 years later. And so they're the same exact animals living in the same exact habitat. Um, but wow. now their whole population size is completely, you know, it's much more crowded. There are a lot more animals. And this, um, this, the growth in the population size is probably reflects a combination of um, increased, you know, ta- over time, the benefits of protecting the habitat, prohibiting hunting, and just giving the, 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 the monkeys a chance to recover their population and re- so reproducing at um, a high rate which is still slow. It's all, every three years, this their birth interval. and But they had very low mortality for a long time, and that helped their population grow, uh, catch up a little bit. So now they're living at um, in the same space, but now there are a lot more animals. And so you know, part of what we're doing now is trying to monitor, to understand how demographic changes affect behavior. And through that, we're getting a better insight into which parts of their behaviors seem to be really um, conservative, really hardwired, um, or very, you know, deep-rooted, and which parts are really facile and responsive to, to changing environmental conditions. So can you give us an example of, of, of both sure. of the really hardwired stuff and, and, and the stuff that can evolve? So the stuff, at least, that we're seeing that seems pretty hardwired, we, don't, we have not seen any kind of, despite this really... Um, huge increase in the population size and the numbers of groups and the use of, you know, over just, just there's so many animals in this forest now. We haven't seen much of an increase in um, aggressive behavior. They're still really peaceful. They avoid conflicts, um, especially within the group. Uh, they avoid conflicts or they wait their turn. They're just really tolerant of one another and and one of the ways, though, that they might be avoiding this is a behavioral change, and that is that they, when the group was smaller, they used to um, travel around together in a cohesive unit. So, you know, pretty much you'd see all the animals in the same group every day, and they would see each other every day. But as the groups gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, so 
went from 22 animals when I started to now there are more than 100 in the, in the main group, more than 100 individuals, and the group became, has become uh, much more fluid. So grouping patterns, you know, there might be 20 or 30 animals hanging around together on any given day, but who those animals are change from day to day. And they, so it's, it's a society we call fission-fusion society, really fluid associations. The animals come together at concentrated food resources, and then when those aren't available, they split up, and their, their interactions are much more fluid. So from the perspective of an individual, Moriki, that was living 30, in this group 30 years ago where they basically knew everyone in their group really well because they spent all their days every day with them, now they have um, they don't see everybody every day. We don't see everybody every day, um, even though we're in the forest with as much effort as as ever. So what we really are seeing is a, a shift in their patterns of association. And one of the more recent patterns um, changes we've begun to watch is as their population has grown so much more, they no longer you know in this island forest really this fragment they have no other place to go they can't expand their area but for an arboreal animal they can go up and down and we're seeing them using the um, three-dimensional parts of their habitat much more so we see them increasingly spending time on the ground and if you think about the difference between being a monkey in a tree and being a monkey on the ground, well, it's more dangerous on the ground because you have all these terrestrial predators and and other risks. But at the same time, you don't have to worry about balancing and you don't have to worry about having um, holding on all the time. And you don't have to worry about all the leaves and branches in your way. And so actually, I think their social dynamics are starting to change as well when they're on the ground, um, if they behave they interact with each other differently than they do in the trees. And that's something that we're really trying to study right now to see what the okay. impact of that might be. You talk a lot about, about the conservation. It's, it's, it's become, to some extent, part of your work, um, if only to, to let the study continue. So how can people help? Well, there's so many things that people can do. I mean, there's a lot of international conservation agencies involved and that care about um, that care about conservation in Brazil and these the Murakis in particular. Um, if people are interested in helping this particular study site um, or any aspect of the corridor project or the conservation efforts we're involved with there then I would say they should feel free to get in touch with me. Um, my can get my email f- off the Internet through the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or, um, and I can p- either put them in touch with the NGO, that the Brazilian NGO that administers this forest and has just done so much to protect one of this, to, this really important population. Um, it's called the Preserve Muraki, and it also has a website. It's it's it sounds that you know having studied these guys for for thirty something years, it's it, it sounds like it would be natural for you to create bonds with the, with with the group of Marikis. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you manage that? Well, it's true that we do. Um, I there are some monkeys, especially some of the individuals from that I knew from the start that you know really care about. I always try to find them when I go every time I'm back in the forest. I always want to see them um, if they're still alive. And, um, you know, definitely feel some personal bonds with 
particular individuals and just they're such um, amazing animals that they're all wonderful. But, you know, you think about what we're there for and really it's just such a privilege to be able to observe them and for them to tolerate us, um, to watch them, that there's really no desire to to manipulate them or to hold them or to take them home or do anything. You know, I really, really just want to have, help them, um, hopefully through our research and our conservation efforts, to be able to stay free in nature in a protected place where they can just go about their um, the rest of their life. And I think that, you know, that 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 sense of just loving something so much that you want what's best for them and what's best for them, these murakis in this protective forest, is probably not to have any contact with people. Professor Stryer, thank you so very much for your time today. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks. It was great to, it was great to have this opportunity to, to talk about something I obviously really care about. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For 80 years, Enya Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at enyareviews.org. I'm Anna Rasquat Paz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>